Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Everybody, how are we this morning? There's two days till Christmas, which means you're one of two people. One, you're thinking, oh my goodness, only two more days of Christmas music, God is good, okay? Uh, or two, you're thinking, only two more days of Christmas music, it's going to be nonstop everywhere I go, all right? I'll let you decide which one of those I am. It's the first. Um, welcome to Crossroads. Before we kick into, I laugh because Andy's definitely the second. He'd play it in July if we would let him. Um, welcome to Crossroads. Before we get going in the message, some business stuff to take care of, uh, it's end of the year giving season, and so I'm just going to say that at Crossroads, about 20% of our operating budget comes in December, and we don't talk about money a whole lot here. Um, we we kind of try and use a lot of confidentiality, but I will say this. Crossroads, you're not going to hear us say the word tithing. We, we actually don't believe in tithing. Tithing is a belief that God wants you to give 10% of all that you have to him. It comes from the Old Testament. Some churches believe that. That's great. Uh, we believe in something called grace giving, which basically is just you give what God calls you to give, and that's between you and him. Um, and I can't look at how much you give, and I don't, by the way, and know how much you love Jesus. That's not how we do things here. I will say this. Um, that it's the end of the year, and if your money needs a home, Crossroads, the church as a family, makes a great home, everybody, all right? Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, over the years, I come and go with my confidence in saying, hey, we need money, but what it comes down to is simply, I believe what God is doing at Crossroads, and it's worth giving to, and if you believe that too, tell your family and friends, because even if they don't know God, you know, he can use their stuff. Um, but out of that, let me say, to add to it, we had a Christmas party as a staff a couple weeks ago, and we were playing this game where you pass gifts, and everybody had a gift, and, and you'd roll some dice, and basically, I would just make up things, and you'd trade with whomever answered the question. So we'd do things like, you know, trade with your favorite staff member. That one got awkward, you know? Um, or one of them I made up was trade gifts with the person who's been on the staff the longest, and it turns out nobody knew the answer going in. I didn't know the answer. It turns out that would be me, everybody. It's been 11 years. I was shocked at that, you know? And why I bring that up is to say that one of my favorite things, and I mean this with all sincerity, is to watch December come and to watch projected income come and to watch God show up year after year after year to provide for his church and for his people. And the beauty of that is I know that happens in churches all over this area because God is good, right? It's one of those awe moments. And so it scares me to death, but at the same time I'm excited for it and I can't explain to you the difference in me right now. I will say this, that we're in a sermon series talking about kind of the awe that's inspired from and by the Advent. And, and when we say awe, what we've talked about over the last few weeks are those moments when God breaks into the narrative of humanity to our story and says, watch me. Those moments when you cannot help but be reminded about the character of God because of what he did. All moments, by and large, in nature, reshape our perspective of God himself. Because sometimes, over time, our view of God gets misaligned. It was an example we brought up a couple weeks ago. One of my favorite writers and thinkers and theologians is a guy named N.T. Wright. And he was a chaplain at a secular university in England. And as a chaplain, he would meet with all the newcoming students every single semester, and he'd get a couple minutes with each one. 
as he's talking about his experience, he said that a lot of students came up to me and said, hey, appreciate meeting with you, but you don't have to worry about me. I don't believe in God. And N.T. Wright's retort to that was, well, which God don't you to believe in, you know? And then to kind of stay, take a step back and try and describe this God that they don't believe in. And, you know, they'd say this wrathful, vengeant, looking down upon, detached God. And N.T. Wright would look at him and say, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. Let's have a conversation, you know? A really beautiful starting point. I think over time, sometimes our perception of God changes and all moments realign those perceptions. So a few weeks ago, we were in Philippians 2 and we simply talked about the awe moment that is recognizing the humility of Jesus. This God who only, only knew heaven for all time before he came to earth. And no matter what faith you're from, heaven is always better than earth. And he stepped out of heaven to walk in the brokenness of us so that we might be able to walk in heaven one day. It's this beautiful moment, this awe-inspiring moment of humility that always leads to presence. And it's a call that you and I have too as we live out the ways of Jesus. Last week we talked about the awe of faithfulness because you read the story in the Bible. You've been told the story in the Bible, the Christmas story. You go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You flip one page. It takes you all of 10 seconds. If that, in the actual story, that, that, that one page, that 10 seconds was 400 years. 400 years of God being silent. You know how frustrating that is? You didn't know anybody who knew anybody who knew anybody who'd ever heard God speak who'd seen God intercede on their behalf. So over a while, prolonged silence leads to doubt. And so we simply talked about the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth last week, that God is faithful. It's his character. And when you see a God who's always, who's consistently faithful, it gives you confidence. It's kind of that, you guys remember that cheesy, overused 90s poem about the footsteps in the sand? Like, you know, that where were you when I saw one set of footprints? I think we have it. I found it this week. He asked Jesus, where were you? The sand people ride single file to hide their numbers, right? Star Wars jokes, happy Star Wars weekend. Had to, all right? But, but seriously, it's that, like four people got that and that's okay, it was worth it. it, it it's, it's a good cheesy poem. It reminds us that sometimes we don't see God being faithful. It doesn't mean he's not. And because we know God is always faithful, what that inspires in us, the awe of looking into the faithfulness of God inspires confidence from God's people. So I know that I can live out and live into his ways because it's not a matter of if he will show up, but when he will show up. And sometimes it's longer than we want. Today we're going to look at another one of those moments, I think, that when you really camp down or dwell on, it inspires awe. We're going to look at Mary's story. And we're going to look at the awe of being chosen, or the awe of chosenness is how we're saying it. Because I think it's one of those things that we have to reshape our perspective of God. Because I don't know about you, but I'm willing to bet we all struggle sometimes with how we see God and how we think God sees us. Because I know myself, and I know that sometimes I'm not perfect. And sometimes I fall into this place where I feel like, I feel like God is more disappointed in me than he is joyful with me. I feel like sometimes I get this picture of God, like the student said to N.T. Wright, looking down with disdain instead of delight on his creation all the time, because I know myself. I was talking to a friend last week, and she is having a hard time thinking about Jesus being joyful, because we all bring baggage of religion into kind of our present experience of God. And so she said, I'm having a hard time remembering that Jesus is joyful, that he's happy. 
And she said, so every morning, I'm getting up, and for a half an hour for the next 30 days, I think it's a half hour or something, longer than it's comfortable, she said, I'm, I'm looking at this picture of Jesus. I'm just looking at it. And over time, I'm hoping that that resets my perspective on how God sees me. Because I default to, she defaults to this idea that God is disappointed in or doesn't delight in us. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about a theology, if you will, of, of chosenness, why God chose Mary, how God chose Mary, what it says about him and what it says about us and what it says about what happens when God chooses in the first place. Because God steps into the narrative of Mary and says, I am choosing you among all people. And her response, where we're going to be today, is this magnificent, called the Magnificat Prayer in Luke 1, starting verse 46. She starts by saying, when she realizes the weight of the chosenness, and it takes her a little while to process, when she realizes the weight of the chosenness, she starts her prayer and says, my soul exalts the Lord because I'm chosen. Before we get into our text, we're going to do what we do every Sunday at Crossroads. We have two goals on Sunday mornings. One is that we want to know more about God. And the only way that we know more about God, or the best way, I should say, that we know more about God is we open the scriptures because he tells us about himself. We open the scriptures because he inspired the writings to tell us about his character and his faithfulness and his humility and his goodness and this morning his chosenness for us. And as we know God more, it leads into the second goal that we have. We want to experience God because a fullness of knowledge always, always leads to an increased influence in the lives of the people that know about it, right? It's the idea that if you are learning about marriage and you're actually married, the more you know about marriage, the more it changes you. And so we know that our goal this morning isn't just to know answers to questions about God. It's to know God and to live his influence out more and more in our world because they need it. And so we want to know God this morning and experience God. And what that means for us is you're not here um, by chance. The Holy Spirit this morning is going to do a work in you. God's going to grow you. He's going to hopefully shift in little ways how you see him and make you fall more in love with Jesus this morning. That's our goal. So we're going to take a couple seconds and pray, and I'm just going to ask that you get your heart right and move it maybe from a critical sphere, which is kind of what we're born with, to one that asks the question, the better question of God, what do you have for me this morning? What are you teaching me from your word? And then after that, I'm going to ask that you pray for me. That did a good job. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm so thankful to be here amongst the, just the chaoticness of Christmas and all the stuff probably in the back of our mind, like presents and wrapping and family and cooking and Christmas Eve. I, I'm thankful that we can put that down for an hour or so and join together on a Sunday morning and remember who you are. God, I pray against divided minds this morning. I pray that you just allow us to focus on your word and who you are. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak to us this morning and grow and shift and maybe even change outright our perceptions of the character of the God that we serve. So if, if you're comfortable, I'm going to ask you to just take a couple seconds and say a silent prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to do something in your spirit this morning as God is active in the space. Then it asks that you pray for me, that I might do a good job accurately depicting the God that we see in the scriptures, that I might do a good job relaying the message of chosenness that we see throughout the story of Mary.
We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. We're in it together. If you got a Bible, Luke 1, we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 46. But before we do all that, let me set up the context because like all biblical narratives, context is pretty key to what we're talking about because you have to understand the weight of Mary's words. And if you don't understand what she's going through, then you will divorce what she's going through, the weight of what she says with her experience. Jamie read it up here during the offering. It starts in Luke 1, verse 26. An angel bursts in, Gabriel sent by God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Because what happens in this story of, of chosenness, by the way, what happens in this story is it seems like at the very beginning, it doesn't seem like a good kind of choosing. It seems like a bad kind of choosing. You have to understand what engagement was in their culture versus our culture. In our culture, it's very different than it was for Mary and Joseph. In our culture, it is kind of like the trial by fire before you take the plunge into matrimony, you know? I went to a premarital before I got married. I send people to this specific premarital that I think does a great job. And they do the very first thing. They get up in front of this room. And there's 400 people in this room and you're at tables. And they say, we have two goals for this next eight weeks. One we hope and pray this grows you together as a couple. And you're like, mm, me too, right? Uh, or two, and this usually hits people upside the head, or we hope and pray this breaks you up. <laughs> you're like, what? And, and their point there is simply that you're going to make a pretty big decision. Be ready for it because it's better to talk about, hash things out now and figure it out on this side of the nuptials than on that side of the nuptials. When as Christ followers, we think that you're kind of locked in, you know? Uh, that's how we see it. We see it as kind of the trial by fire before you take the plunge in the matrimony. I've been in too many weddings that I've done where I'm in the groom's suite before the marriage. And one groomsman always thinks he's going to be like really funny with a joke that nobody's ever heard. And he says, hey man, last chance if you want to get out, I'll cover for you. You know? And I look at this guy like, what are you doing, man? That's why I always thought when they'd ask in old school weddings, does anybody object to this? Object two months before, not two minutes before. Be mature, all right? Anyway, so um, we believe that it's kind of like the trial by fire before you take the plunge into matrimony. In the first century world, engagement was as secure as marriage. Engagement wasn't about you. You didn't choose your husband. You probably didn't choose your wife. It was transactional. It was most likely your family kind of gaining steam or strides in the hierarchy of their social calendar or their social culture, I should say. And, and it was, you'd give a couple goats for this girl, and you'd give a couple cows for this girl, or you'd give some land for this transaction of marriage. And when you signed on the dotted line and said, I'm betrothed to or engaged to, in the Jewish culture, you were seen as married. So much so that if you died and you were engaged, you were seen in their law as a widow. So much so that if you cheated on your engaged person in, your, um, in that current culture, that you could be stoned for it because that was the punishment for adultery back then if you were a woman. And so what, what you see is right off the bat, they have a different view of engagement. And so this angel comes to Mary and says, you are chosen by God. He comes and says, you're engaged to Joseph. He continues, do not be afraid though. If you've found favor with God, listen, you'll become pregnant and give birth to a son and you'll name him Jesus. That word there is intriguing to me when it says, when, when the angel Gabriel says that you have found favor with God. That word found favor 
and it carries weight with it. it we, we see it time and time again in the scriptures. One of the clearest examples is in the Noah narrative, the whole flood idea in the Old Testament found in Genesis 6. God creates and the wickedness of man takes over and leads to this moment when God literally says, I am sad that I created because sin, even though I knew it was going to come, still hurts and pains me because I wanted something better for my creation. And he looks down and says, I am saddened by creation. And then it says, but Noah found favor with God. It carries with it this connotation of God chose this person because God is gracious, not because they like paid God some money to, to tip the cap his way. Growing up, I always, 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 like one of my dreams that has gone unexperienced is I want to catch a foul ball in a baseball game. You guys ever do that? I would take my little glove every time. And my parents were so nice. They'd say, it's going to happen. I feel it. I remember this one trip I took with some of my parents' friends. This guy, one of my dad's friends, before every pitch would be like, it's coming. Not this one. And he'd like, I, f- I feel it's coming right now. I feel it. I didn't realize until later he just lied for an entire baseball game. Um, and then you don't realize till later. And I'll, I'll figure this out with my kid, whether I should tell them the truth or let them believe in things. But I think um, if you really put like the numbers, 40,000 people in a baseball stadium, 15, 16 foul balls could go like anywhere in 270-ish degrees. I'm not catching a foul ball. All three foot two of me that was that way before I was 17 is not going to get a foul ball. All right? Um, I didn't realize that then. But then you meet these people that are like, yeah, I caught three when I was seven. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And how are you this lucky? We jug about my little brother having a shamrock tattooed right on his backside, you know? Because if there's a prize or if there's a lottery or if there's a pull and win thing, he's going to win it. It's the idea that you didn't do anything to earn it. Something just smiled favorably upon you to make your life better. This is the connotation from the word when it says in the angel and one said to Noah, you have found favor with God. And so what happens is this angel appears to marry this probably 13-ish-year-old girl who wasn't married yet and said, you found favor with God. And then they describe that favor as being, you're going to get pregnant and you're going to give birth and you're not even married yet. My thing there is it doesn't feel like that's the chosenness I want, (laughs) you know? It doesn't feel like, "Mm, lucky me, I was chosen by God. It feels more like, can this go to somebody else, please? So her response to the angel, I think, and her response when she writes the prayer is profoundly mature because she listens to this narrative and she says to the angel, the angel says to her, you're going to give birth. She goes and sees her sister, her cousin. And then she writes this hymn of praise starting in verse 46. And she says, I know I've been picked by God and let me tell you what that does for me. Look at verse 46, chapter one of Luke. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has begun to rejoice in God, my Savior, because he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. She says, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has begun to rejoice in God, my Savior, because he's looked upon the humble state of his servant. I find that profound. I find that profound because God came to her and says, I chose you. And culturally, it seemed like that wasn't a good thing. And she looked at it and said, God chose me. And do you know, do you know what this does? This is what the awe of knowing the choosingness or the chosenness of God brings. It brings joy. Even unexplainable joy that doesn't seem like joy in the moment. She says, God is so good and I am so blessed because God has chosen me. She goes on to say, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. 
The awe of chosenness that God chose her leads towards joy. My question is, how and why does it do that? And then does that relate to me? Does God choosing of me leave me feeling joyful? Because here's what I think we do culturally sometimes, I feel like I do, is, is we take moments of blessing and we make them moments of feeling like we're cursed, you know? And Mary had that chance. She could have said, I don't want this. This doesn't look good. I'm going to be judged by people. Joseph doesn't even know. I could die. She literally says, God chose me and he says it's good. So I know it's good instead of maybe this isn't the best thing. All nations, she said, will call me blessed. We have these moments when we take blessings and make them curses. And we do it all the time, you know? And what that does is it dilutes the very nature of the joy that we have when we realize that God has chosen us. I use this example a lot, but I think it's really pertinent. I I grew up two miles from here, upper middle class home in Double Oak, Texas. I know this area well. I used to work with students, and I'd love when students would look at me and say, I can't wait to get out of this place. I don't want to be here anymore. And that's not all of them, that's some of them. And I'd look at them and just smile and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) You haven't traveled. You don't know. You do not understand that this is not a curse, Flower Mound. It is a blessing, okay? You have to understand that. I think we've had an interesting couple months as a country. And some people might look at being born in America. I've read articles about it as more of a curse than a blessing. But it still doesn't change the fact I read yesterday that if you're born in America and you make over $32,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of earners in the world. Say what you want about the problems we have, but being born here is way more of a blessing than a curse. But we have this, this idea that we take blessings and make them curses. And what that does fundamentally is it robs us of our joy. What that does is we think that God doesn't pick us, God defaults to us, and then we don't have joy in God choosing us in the first place. Because there's a difference between believing that God chose you when he was the first captain with the first pick and believing you were the last person on the kickball team, you know, recess as a kid. You get two captains and it's terrifying because they're going to pick the best athletes. And as one of them go one by one, you might be the person that was always picked first. You have no idea what I'm talking about, right? Um, but then there's always like the two people left and you're just hoping and praying that you're not the one chosen last because you're not chosen then, you're forced. <laughs> it, it changes God choosing us from bringing joy to doing it out of some kind of need. It changes our perspective of God from choosing out of duty instead of choosing out of delight because we take blessings and make them curses. But really, when we look at the human condition, when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the New Testament, it's a battle they all went through. Even the disciples, for example, when they'd been passed over by people to become studiers of the Torah, the word, Jesus says in John 15, you didn't choose me to his disciples, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he may give you. If you know anything about the Old Testament requirements for being a disciple of a rabbi, which is what Jesus was and what the disciples were, if you know anything about that, um, it was the best of the best. And by age, usually six or seven, you knew you were going to be one or not. There was three different levels of schooling. And with each level, if you weren't at the very top of your class, they would say, go home and do what your dad does. Go home and do what your dad does. So when Jesus comes on the scene and picks 12 people that were already in jobs their dads did, they were passed over by the people to study the things of God. So Jesus comes to them and says, I choose you. I choose you. 
God could have whatever person he wanted. God chose you. And that's a tension that we see as Jesus walks and talks, is that seemingly he chooses people that others wouldn't choose or delight in. We see it in who he walks and talks with, whether it be a tax collector in the Gospels, or whether it be an unmarried, adulterous woman, or whether it be all the different people he talks to. We get this narrative that God seemingly chooses people we don't deem worthy of choosing. And what that means for you, and what that means for me, quite simply, is oftentimes we feel like God had to choose us and doesn't choose us because he wants us. And so the awe of knowing how and why God chooses brings about incredible joy. Because this is what God says about us as followers of Jesus. It says in Ephesians 2, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizen with the saints and are of God's household. Ephesians 2.10, we know this verse well. For your God's workmanship, some translations say masterpiece created in Christ Jesus created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would, you could walk in them. I think when we look at the story of Mary, what I'm reminded of, what hopefully you're reminded of, is that God didn't choose us followers of Jesus out of duty. He delights in it. It changes our perspective on who God is and how he sees us. Because I need that. Because so often I feel like God asks for people and he's left with me, you know? Like they all said no, and here I am, Lord, send me, kind of sort of mentality. That's not what the scriptures say. Because if you believe that God called you out of duty, there is no joy. If you believe God called you out of delight, there's massive amounts of joy. Mary looks at her chosenness and says, God has chosen me. That brings only joy. So what she's gonna do in the next few verses is she's going to really double down on why. She's going to get into it a little bit, why this brings joy. And there's really three different ways that she focuses on. She says, I know that God's chosenness of me brings about the result of staring at the awe of the chosenness of God towards me, brings about incredible joy. And let me tell you why that joy is deep. And there's three ways that she really talks about. She says, look inward, look upward, and then look outward. And the first thing she says is God chose me to be um, the bearer or the, the, the bringer about of the Messiah. And she continues on. And she says, because he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So she says, here's why I take joy in being chosen. Because God chose and did things for me. She says, I've looked at myself and I know myself. And the more that I look inward, the more I appreciate and take joy in God's choosing of me. The Bible talks about that kind of idea in different ways. The bigger one that you're going to get is the idea of being poor, essentially. Poverty of spirits, a theme that kind of runs through Mary's prayer a little bit. You'll see it in a couple verses later on. It talks about the idea that what spurs on the joy of being chosen is knowing that she's not worthy of being chosen. She delights in it more that way, knowing God delights in choosing somebody that's not worthy. So she says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And it's really important to note is that when she says great things for me, it's not simply great things for me that I started and began, but really needed some seed money to complete the VC ca- you know, campaign. It, it is in every single way that God did for me in ways that I could never, ever do. The kind of poverty that you can't get out of. I remember the first time I saw like poverty. Again, I grew up here and see much poverty, you know? Um, and so I remember the first time I saw poverty, I was working in San Francisco with a team of people, 
And we were a small arm of this organization that would get people in every week. And we'd partner with about, no, oh, 15 or 20 different nonprofits in San Francisco. And if you guys don't know, San Francisco has a huge homeless problem. And I grew up here, and so I just assumed that if you were homeless, it was because you made bad decisions or you liked drugs, <laughs> you know? And sometimes that's true. I remember the first time we went down to this area in San Francisco called the Tenderloin. It's like three or four blocks. And it's called that because it's the place where the most homeless concentration is and the most drug deals are done. And the underlying factor behind that is because the cops kind of say what happens there stays there. Don't go to the most affluent parts of the city. And so they kind of let things go a little bit there. We went to go check out this food bank and came back and um, there was a homeless man sleeping next to the driver's side door of my car where I couldn't open the door. Um, I didn't know what to do. They don't teach you how to do things like that in Double Oak, <laughs> you know? So I woke him up and I said, hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to need you to move, <laughs> you know? And I started thinking a lot about as we interacted with poverty in a different level every single day what it meant. And we did a lot of teaching on the cyclical nature of poverty. And let me tell you something that's really sad about poverty, like true, can't take myself out of poverty. It's not just that you don't have money to buy yourself clothes or a meal or a home. True poverty wears down your ability to think that you can change your circumstance and situation, which we all believe coming from here. You get to the point when you don't believe anything you do will change where you're at or the situation you're in, and that is horribly depressing. That's where most of these people find themselves, that kind of poverty. Why I mention that is when we talk about poverty of spirit in the Bible, that's what it's talking about. There's nothing you can do to change your circumstance or situation. Jesus did that for you. It's this understanding that you can't. And so Mary says, the mighty one has chosen and the mighty one does things for me. And what she means is for me and the all-encompassing, like I know me and I couldn't do anything that he is doing for me. And the more she looks at her depravity, the more she realizes the goodness of God. And that's a theme with kind of the biblical fathers in the Old Testament. You see it kind of with all of them as they encounter God. Abraham, for example, the father of all of them, said in Genesis 18, I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Although who am I but dust and ashes? Jacob said, I am not worthy at all of the faithful love you've shown to your servant Moses, who brought them out of Egypt. If there is a man that could be prideful in the Old Testament, it's Moses. He said to God when he first met him, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh or that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? What we get is this idea that when we understand ourselves and we pair that with the simple understanding that God chose us and delighted in that, it increases our joy. I had a conversation this week with a good friend of mine. And he asked me about, um, there's a term for a really tough question called a theodicy. You might know what that is. It's just pretty much the question of if God is good and all-powerful, why do bad things happen? Why doesn't he stop it? Like if God's good, he can stop it. Or he's not all-powerful or he's not good. And I think that conversation is a really good one and one that we've probably all struggled with. And there's a couple different answers to that. My favorite answer, though, is I know myself. And if we're really asking God to rid the world of all injustice, why would he not start with me? You know? So, so when we say, God, do something with the evil in the world, why do we believe that we're exempt from it? Know yourself. It's the idea of saying that the more I do know myself, 
the wider the chasm is between I should be chosen and I am chosen, and that inspires deeper and richer and more joy. Mary said, the mighty has done something for me so that I will be blessed through all the nations. So the first place she absolutely looks is towards herself, because there is a special kind of beauty to being chosen when you weren't, when you didn't need to be chosen, you know? I'm as I get older, hopefully becoming more mature, as I get older and as I keep doing this parenting thing, I am finding myself more appreciative of my parents, you know? They weren't perfect, for sure. But they chose to love me and they chose to bring me into the world and they didn't have to do any of those things. And when I realize slowly and surely what it costs you to be a parent, I am more joyful because my parents chose to love me in the first place. There's a beauty in choosing to love something when you didn't need to, to live, to survive, to exist. So what we see in the idea of chosenness is that ultimately it brings about massive amounts of joy because God chose us and we didn't deserve it in the first place. And Mary said, God has done this to me of all people. Two, she doesn't just stop by looking at herself. I think she looks upward towards God as well. She said, because he who is mighty has done great things for me and his holy name. (laughs) So she juxtaposes right away who she is with what she knows about who God is. In this text alone, there are 16 references to the Old Testament that Mary writes. What you see is a 13-year-old girl-ish who was profoundly knowledgeable in the scriptures, who knew who God was, who knew what God's holiness meant. It's kind of like, and in this prayer, if you've read 2 Samuel, there's another woman named Hannah who couldn't have a kid, then had a kid, and then writes a prayer to God. Um, You get a lot of similarities between the two, but they're not the same. And kind of the picture it paints is that Mary was so well-versed in scripture that she began talking to God like the scriptures she knew already. It's kind of like when you hang out with somebody and you change how you speak around the crowd you're hanging out with because you know them so well, they're so ingrained in who you are, that you start speaking like them. This is what Mary's doing about God. My point here is simply she knew God really well. And when you juxtapose the depravity of us to the holiness of God in that chasm, we find more depth of joy. God didn't have to when he did. I know me and I know who he is. So when we read verses like God made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God, it gives us a greater appreciation for the chosenness. I remember in college, uh, I'm not artsy. I've tried so many times in my life to be artsy because I want to be. Do you ever have things you really want to be but you're just not good at? I've tried to draw. I am so bad. I make stick figures look horrible, right? And that's what they are by definition. I took a photography class in college because I thought, this is going to be really cool. I can be artsy. You could, it was old school, right? There was a dark room. You had to develop the film yourself. This was before the digital movement when everybody's a photographer. And um, I, uh, I took this class and I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to be so good at this, guys. So good. And you had to present at the midway point your portfolio. And I had mine. I was like, I'm, I'm pretty proud of this. And then my name's, you know, Ridenauer R. So I went towards the end of the class. And by about three people in, there's probably 15 people in this class, by about three people in, I realized I should just walk away right now. 
just leave. Save yourself the embarrassment. Please leave the room. It was probably the most uninspired presentation I've done because I was like, here's this picture. That's terrible. Oh, here's another bad picture, everybody. I am not good at this at all. I'm just embarrassing myself. Give me a C. Let me sit down. You know, it's just, and I tried so hard, you know. It's something that you think is so easy. You try, you realize how hard it really is. And in realizing your depravity towards what true greatness is, you see the depth of that. And, and if you understand the width between those two position and points, if my professor still came to me and said, I'm choosing you to do the senior portfolio for this class, that would give me great joy knowing I don't deserve it. So when we look at ourselves, when we look inward, Mary says you get joy. She says you get great joy when you look upward to God if you really know who he is. Kierkegaard's a philosopher, and he says, God creates out of nothing wonderful, you say, yes, to be sure. But he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. So much so that in our story that we read, there's a point when Mary looks at the angel and says, how can this happen? I'm a teenager, and I absolutely have never known a man in the sense that when you know a man, a baby happens. And the angel replies to her, Nothing is impossible with God. The knowing the highness of the holiness of God. That God chose her. It increases her joy. And then finally, you see not just an inward appreciation or an upward appreciation, but an outward appreciation. She starts ending her praise and she says, God, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's lifted up those in lowly positions. He's filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away empty. What she's doing here is describing the promises of God to bring the unjust things to justice through the work of Jesus ultimately in the end. That's beginning with his birth. What she's saying is that this God that I know that chose me when I didn't deserve it, that is bigger, higher, holier than me, inspires joy. And what also inspires joy is not just knowing me and knowing God, but seeing what God does, seeing what he's all about. So she says, he will dethrone the higher people on thrones. And what she means by that are those unjust rulers that are oppressing her at the moment. She will, God will upend them and bring justice to unjust situations. It's a narrative that Jesus walks into really well. It's actually one of the things I find the most fascinating about the birth story of Jesus. Because I play this game often, I'm sure you do too. If I was God, I would fill in the blank, you know? And I've thought often about what I would do if I was God and I'm coming to earth. I thought often about how I would make my presence known. It probably involves some fog machine and me being raised up from the ground. Because I was a Backstreet Boy fan back in the day and that's still the coolest thing I've seen, Okay. Jesus came and was born in a manger with some animals around with no fanfare. I think what really gets me though is the idea of who God used along the way. So the first couple stories we see of God setting his plan of redemption in motion through Jesus, the next chapter of him reconciling creation, he speaks to two women and says, I'm gonna use you in my plan of redemption. And the women are the central figures and the men are the secondary figures. And that's a big deal. And we've quoted this often and regularly because it's important to remember. But as a Jew in the first century world, they didn't have the highest esteem or regard for women. It's actually written in their literature. A pious Jew would get up every morning and say, God, I thank you for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. <laughs> you know? So what does God do? He announces after 400 years of silence his coming through Elizabeth and through Mary. And then he goes to Joseph and says, I've already talked to your wife. Don't worry, I got that taken care of. Here's your role in this. He doesn't go to Joseph and say, you're going to go to your wife as the husband and say, 
Because if you're telling the story of God breaking in, that's how you'd write it. You wouldn't write it like this because you want people to believe you. And, and what happens is what we see is God continually work through people that you wouldn't choose and places that you wouldn't choose. It says in verse 26, what we read earlier, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth. <laughs> I think we've probably built up what Nazareth was in our head. Nazareth was small. There's actually no word in the Greek for town. There's only one for city and village. And so what the author's doing is saying it's a city in Galilee because even if you were around the area, you didn't know where it was. It was so small, but you knew what Galilee was. It's like, have you ever tried to describe to anybody not from the Flomo area where Double Oak is? You could live here your entire life in Dallas and be like, I'm from Double Oak. I'm sorry, where? Is that Oklahoma? No, it's not. When I get packages shipped to the church sometimes, I say Double Oak and it autocorrects it to Louisville. And that's really hard for me because I know I'm right and it's hard to let go of that, you know? It's so small and so insignificant, God would never use or choose it in the first place. That's the beauty of God choosing this as he does anyway and delights in it. And then there's some words in there that Mary talks about, but the rich... um, actually having to feel hunger and the hungry and the poor being fed. And what she means there is simply that part of what Jesus will do will upend the social order that we see all around us that leads towards injustice. It's hope for now and a promise for the future. Again, we see God choosing things that we wouldn't choose and delighting in them as the narrative. Jesus actually, one of my favorite stories, and I think it's Luke 4, he is starting his public ministry and everybody knew he was a teacher. And he goes to the synagogue. It's a synagogue is a, a church that they made outside of Jerusalem. So you have a bunch of Jewish people that believed and they'd get there and they'd read the scriptures. And he's in there on, on the Sabbath, which is their holiest of days. And they hand Jesus the scroll from Isaiah. And they say, read something from Isaiah. And he turns to the part of Isaiah that prophesies about the Messiah. These are things you don't read if you're not it, you know? And he opens up to the scroll and he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the reigning and the regaining of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And it said, and everybody stared at him. That's one of those moments where people are like, what is this guy doing? Does he know that's not about him? And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. That takes some gumption in the middle of a synagogue on the Sabbath. And and he starts talking about the justice of God saying, this is the plan of what God does to right the wrongs and to choose people who wouldn't necessarily be chosen and delight in that. So when you understand that taking some awe at God's ability to choose, his desire to choose us, you, me, Mary, when you understand that God's choosingness of us only leads to joy and the joy is deepened as you think about yourself, as you think about who God is and as you think about his plan of redemption for the world, all that builds up is this idea that God is good and I should be joyful all the time. It's an awe moment because I didn't deserve it. He's better than it, but here's what he's doing. Let's go together. And it starts with Jesus coming here. One night in what we call December. This beautiful moment when she remembers that God is worth taking joy in because God delights in the people that he uses. And that's the hardest part. Is oftentimes when we talk about those awe moments, we need to reset our perspective. We need to reset our perspective from a God who's angry and from a God who is disappointed to a God who delights in his people because he's doing something. 
And so for some of us today, we, we leave, and all you needed to know was that God chose you, that, God cho- that you were chosen by God. And that's beautiful, and that's enough. And that's enough and something that I oftentimes forget, that God didn't default to me. He, he delighted in choosing me. And as we dwell on the awe of being chosen by God, our joy grows as we look at ourselves, as we look at who he is, and as we look at and tell the story of what he's doing in our world. It allows us to, like Mary did, start a prayer by saying, my soul exalts in the Lord who chooses us. So I'm going to end today by reading Mary's entire prayer. She said, my soul exalts in the Lord, and my spirit has begun to rejoice in God my Savior because he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed because he who is mighty has done great things for me and and holy is his name. From generation to generation, he's merciful to those who fear him. He's demonstrated power with his arm. He's scattered those whose pride wells up from their sheer arrogance of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up those of lowly position. He's filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy as he's promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. The God that we serve has chosen us and delights in his people May that lead to an ever-increasing amount of joy as we look into the awe of being chosen. Let me pray for us. God, I'm just so incredibly thankful of the reminder that you chose us, that you desired us, that you came near, that we might know, love, and trust you, and that you use us, not because we're worth it. You use us in your plan of redemption to the world, starting in and with the Old Testament, continuing through Mary and including us, the church. As we dwell on the awe of being chosen, might it fight back any misconceptions or perceptions we have that you didn't want to, (laughs) that you were left with us? And as we talk about us not being good enough, might it always end with the joy that God is and delights in us anyway. May we be a community of joy because God chose us. And may we share that message of hope with all those who need to hear it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.